This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This week on a special episode of Hangar Talk, we're looking back at the biggest stories of 2021, many of which we couldn't agree on. David, one of my top stories, the insurance market for older pilots. It's a big deal keeping a lot of people out of aviation. Well, Ian, I do disagree with you on that. It's an important story, but we got to make sure we talk about one of aviation's preeminent writers, Martha Lunkin. She got her certificates revoked back in April after flying under a bridge. Yeah, that's a fun story. I don't know about the biggest, but uh, let's go to the used market. This one I think we agree on. Really good or really bad, depending on which side of the market you're on, but really it's a tight market. Prices are going up. We'll see what that means for the future of aviation. Yeah, it has ramifications for student pilots who are just beginning to to get their certificates in order, get their medical records and stuff like that. So we don't want to stifle the market. Listen, Ian, I think that a big story this year is Air Venture. It was back. It was bigger than ever. Well, I didn't go, so I don't agree. <laughs> <laughs> no, we did a hangar talk live from there, so it was actually pretty cool. That's true. Yeah. All right, the last one, I think everybody agrees on this, Avgas. What is going to happen with Avgas in the future? The big developments over this year, we'll talk about that. I agree with you on that. Avgas and unleaded fuel for a- aviation, I think that's going to continue to be a big story the years to come. All right, you ready to do some hangar talk, David? Let's do it, Ian. From AOPA, your freedom to fly. This is Hangar Talk. The 1056 turn right heading 130, contact final 132.4. Turn right, With your hosts, Ian Twombly and David Tulitz. This is Hangar Talk. Welcome to Hangar Talk, everybody. I'm Ian Twombly. And I'm David Tulis. David, no guest this week. We're going we're gonna to give it a break, come up with a special episode to, I guess, say goodbye to the old year and ring in the new year, which we usually do. But, you know, we talked about this ahead of time. Usually we come up with five and we say, okay, yeah, these are definitely the top five stories. Bit of a weird year for all of us, of course. We couldn't agree. So we kind of split it up a little bit here. Let's start with number five, one of mine, and that is the aircraft owner insurance market, it is rough. And especially if you're an older pilot, you know, I I wouldn't hesitate to use the word discriminatory. It just keeps, I think, getting worse. And and this, I think, is a big deal. Well, I don't disagree that it's a big deal, Ian. I just don't, I'm not sure if it's a top five story of the year. We will be keeping an eye on this in the future. Just FYI, a lot of folks might not be plugged into this, but once you you turn, you know, 70, if you're 69, you go and turn 70 on your birthday, it seems to be the magic number where some insurance companies put the brakes on and they they make you either get uh, more recurrent training or they jack up the rates um, and make it really hard for you to be an aircraft owner and still be flying. So I agree that that's a significant story. I'm not sure if it's a top five because we hear about insurance rates a lot. Actually, I wrote about it a couple of years ago. 
Yeah, that's true. It is cyclical. I will say it's it's as bad as it's been that I can remember. You know, we've we have talked a, a little bit about why it's like this. There were some big losses. They say the underwriters say even things like the Boeing's that went down around the world, like that ties into the our market as well. I don't know. To me, it sounds a bit like an excuse, but what do I know? I think there. You know, you look at the cost of maintenance now, and every time somebody has a gear up. There, that is a huge amount of money that that insurance company is paying out. And so, yes, every time we have one of these little incidents, the price goes up, parts are harder to find. I think they're scrapping more airplanes. So, yeah, definitely their costs have gone up, and they're trying to recoup some of that. Yeah, and the other thing that's going to tie into another story we're going to talk about in a few minutes is the fact that there aren't that many airplanes out there available, not only just for sale, but for parts. And so yeah. as the fleet matures more and thins out a little bit, you you are right. You have a good point that parts are going to be more scarce and harder to come by. Listen, don't forget, we just came through uh, about, a, a, you know, just a few weeks ago, some devastating tornadoes through the Midwest yes. and the Southeast. That happens too. Absolutely. Yeah. And a couple of years ago, we had John C. Toon Airport in, in Nashville just devastated. Uh, small airplanes like Cirrus models and Cessnas, as well as some jets that country music performers had. And so that was a big loss for that year, too. Yeah, absolutely. Now, one thing I, I want to make sure that we mention is that AOPA, did, we're doing everything we can on this issue. It is a private market, so it's rough. It's not like we're dealing with the government here that has to be responsive to us. But we are pushing in every way we can think of. One of the ways, one of the things we did earlier this year was commission a survey. And because we want to know, you know, unlike car insurance where, there are these really detailed actuary tables, and because the market's so big, they can say, well, if you're 70 years old and a male and you've lived in these places, this is your risk. You know, aviation's not like that. It's very much a, a feel business. You know, the underwriters, they they have to know the pilot, they have to know the risk, and, and they, they really just feel it out. And so we did a survey to say, okay, well, are these pilots that are over 70 any more or less safe? And the fact of the matter is they're not any less safe. And so it's really just, like you said, an arbitrary number. Actually, I believe our survey says they were more safe in a lot of instances, Ian. Yes. Because, uh, you know, a lot of folks value the experience that you gain by being an older pilot. And uh, the survey, which went to 30,000 pilots and aircraft owners, which is pretty significant, you know, basically it, it found that respondents who were 70 or older were no more likely to have been involved in an accident in the past five years than younger pilots. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So something we'll continue to look at in the coming year. Um, speaking of old pilots, David, we know one that got in a little bit of trouble this year. And Martha Lunkin, you mentioned it. I don't know. This is a fun story. Well, fun. Not for her. For the rest of us, maybe. No, no, uh, an interesting story. <laughs> but you think it's one of your biggest based on actually readership numbers from an online story you did. Yeah, I did write an online story. I didn't, let, let's... Uh, Put Olive Branch out to uh, to Martha. She was a, a good sport. She talked to me on the telephone and was explaining this. So for folks who might not have been up to speed on it, Martha is a longtime aviation writer. She writes for flying. And, you know, she flew under this bridge, the Jeremiah Morrow Bridge. That's in Ohio. And uh, Interstate 71 goes over it near the Little Miami River. So listen, here's my problem with that. First of all, get to the point. The FAA, when they found out about it, they revoked her certificates. And this is, she's like basically a master pilot. She's been flying for decades. You know, there's a, there's the Lunkin Field Airport, you know, that she flies out of. So this is a, a pretty, a pretty embarrassing situation. Now, what she said was basically this, hey, you know, I've been flying past this bridge my whole life, you know, I'm, 
you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm approaching, you know, the end of my flying career to, to, you know, to speak. And it was just too good to be true. I just had to fly under it one time. Now, listen, I get it on the, on the outside of that. Um, I understand it. But the problem is that is a it was a safety factor issue because folks have been working on that bridge, inspecting that bridge, either via either via drones or actually rappelling underneath it. And she didn't know if people were going to be there or not. So that's the first thing. The other thing is that if you look at the regs, you're really not supposed to be anywhere closer than 500 feet basically above any person, place, or thing. Or structure, yeah. Right, or structure. And so I actually took this to um, to our, our legal folks. I asked asked some folks about that. And the problem is that really flying under a bridge or near a bridge like that, it really, it, it's, the FAA looks at it as basically you're threatening that bridge. So it, they may allege that you're a danger of damaging the the bridge itself. Oh, so even if there aren't any cars on it and people that even if you danger. do nothing, hmm. right, right, and potential endangerment of persons or property is sufficient to invoke a certificate action. So that is the key right there. Now we did a little research, and you and I were were checking this out ahead of time. There's a little bit of an update, right? Yeah. So she wrote in flying. We talked about, I mean, this happened, your story came out in April, I think. She had flown under it maybe even a year prior, maybe more. It was, it was in March. Okay. Yeah. So she wrote in flying in August, what was sort of a, to be completely honest, a non-apology apology. Uh-huh. She said, well, I knew I shouldn't have done it. I admitted right away that I did it. But then she goes on to say, well, this felt really harsh and I've had this lifetime of flying and you know, it's one momentary lapse of judgment. And I just think like, man, own it or don't, you know, say that I did this. I totally deserved it. It was careless and reckless. I deserve to have my certificates revoked or fight it because I, I don't like, she's clearly not at peace with the decision she made and, and the decisions the FAA made. And I, I don't know. I think there's, that's one reason to still talk about it is it feels like she's not quite there on, in terms of owning the fact that this was a mistake. Because like you said, a, a really a, supposedly a pillar of the community. And it's like, okay, whether or not you could safely fly under the bridge to me is irrelevant. The, the whole point is that you, you have to set yourself up as an example and it's a poor example. Someone who's that high profile, that's the other thing. We all really need to yeah. be careful. Let's face it, Ian, when I go fly and I'm in one of the AOPA airplanes and I'm going somewhere, I'm super careful. Yeah. That's not to, not to say something might not happen in the future. I know it, I get it, but you know, the AOPA logo is on the aircraft, the Cessnas that I, that I fly. And so I take a little bit of extra precaution, and I would not want to jeopardize any any person's life or, or even like a, a, a property, you know, or the bridge or anything like that. So um, and I agree with you also on the fact that she hasn't really quite owned up to it yet. And the penalty was pretty severe. You know, all of her certificates were revoked for at least a year now. Kathy Yotis, folks might remember uh, Kathy from working with AOPA a while back in our legal department. So she got the one-year revocation period reduced to nine months. And Martha was able to apply for a student certificate after December 2nd, which is just a couple of weeks ago. But she would have to start off, like like I just said, as a student pilot. And, and this is someone who's been flying for 60 years. Could you imagine? And I think, yeah. Wow. So it's a tough deal for her. And I know aviation is at her heart and soul. You know, that's uh, one of the things that keeps her going. And, and readers uh, around the world, you know, look forward to her columns. Mm-hmm. Now, she has, in fact, in the past, spanked the FAA on the butt a little bit. Yeah. So they might have been already looking for her. I'm not saying she was a scapegoat or anything, but the antennas might have been raised a little bit on that. 
I suppose, yeah. But nonetheless, I think there's going to be more to this story in the future, and I want to stay on top of it a little bit. Yes, yes. Well, because that's a good point. I mean, you you said the update, and of course I didn't give it. I just pontificated a little bit. But the we did check the registry, and at least in, unless the registry is behind, which is possible, it it doesn't show her having applied yet for the student certificate. So we'll see if she does. But uh, as of at least the registry says as of now, she has not. Well, let's move on to something we both agree on. What about that, yes. Ian? The used airplane market. You and I have both looked at this from the consumer perspective, from reporting on it. It is nuts, like nothing we have ever seen. Oh, my goodness, Ian. I'll tell you what. I, I was just thinking about this the other day. I had a Mooney M20C that I sold in 2010. I sold it for 32000 bucks. And I was, I've been looking to replace that you know, the past couple of years, really. I'm just kind of off and on looking. That particular Mooney M20C model, something similar, is 60000 bucks if you can find one. And that's one, ex- one example, just one example. Yeah. There's all kinds. I mean, I just talked to somebody the other day who brokers uh, turboprops and light jets. They said an airplane that last year, maybe 18 months ago, would have been $1.9 maybe a citation. It's going for like 2.9 these days. Really? Insane. Yeah. It's like from 1.9 to 2.9 million. That's significant. That's 50% increase. Yeah. Wow. Even jets, which, you know, normally a jet would spend six weeks, a couple months on the market, even if it's a good airplane, because it takes time, you know, to find the right buyer and to make the deal come through. Now they're like not even going on the market. People, you call the broker, you say, I'm looking for this, find me one. And they find one, it never goes on the market. It goes straight to that buyer, and uh, that's happening all over the place with all sorts of airplanes. Here's another example. A couple of weeks ago, Jill Tomlin and I were out in uh, in Big Bend, Texas. We went flying with Cessna 182 owner Mark Morrison. Thank you, Mark, for a great tour of the Big Bend area. He bought a Cessna 182 about three years ago for sixty thousand dollars. It's very good air, very nice airplane, very solid. Oh, what's it worth now? It's got to be one twenty. It's 120, 130, 140. Jeez. You know, Ian, I saw a 172 Cessna, like a like an N model, which is the late 70s, you know, early 80s model, listed for $179,000 recently. Oh, it's insane. Insane. It's great if you're an airplane owner, though. I mean, it's a fantastic if you're an airplane owner, but if you're trying to get in the market, it's not good. And if you're a student pilot, this is where the ramifications, I think, hit home. You know, AOPA is all about growing the pilot population, and we want to keep costs down. But if aircraft costs are going up, it's going to be very hard for flight schools to keep the cost down. So I think that's that's the bigger issue. Yeah, and we know flight schools are just clamming for airplanes. So we did, we've done stories about this throughout the year. One of the factors is that the manufacturers can't keep up. So if you're a flight school and let's say you've got somebody who's going to buy you a new 172 and lease it back to the school or you have access to capital and you want to do that, you can't get the airplane. And so even if you wanted to buy new, you can't. And so you go to the used market and that drives up the used market prices, especially on those trainers like you mentioned. There are a few deals, we'll call them. I think if you are flexible with your mission, so everybody wants the 172, the Cherokee, the Mooney, you know, that that four-seat, 100 and, 100 to 140 knot airplane, a 182, you know, Bonanza if you've got a little more money. If you're flexible with your mission, if you say to yourself, okay, how many people do I really take? How far do I really go? Usually two people and 400 miles. Exactly. An LSA can do that mission. I mean, it's not going to do that. Well, that's a great idea. I didn't even think of that. Yeah, it's not going to do that hard IFR, but there are some great LSA deals, I will say. These are modern airplanes. Rotax engine is awesome. I love it. So I'd say look in LSA. 
I would have said Moonies, but they're they're climbing. I mean, they're still cheaper than than 172s. They they are the the F model, which is a little bit bigger. It's a you know again a 19 late 60s early 70s model. The F model is pre- previous to the J model, which was really slicked up. But you're looking at nine gallons an hour on a 200 horsepower engine, and uh, that's pretty economical when you think about that. Say you know. But those are now going for around seventy or $80,000, too. And listen, Ian, that's the other thing. When you're looking at an airplane like that, a lot of times it's going to need an engine overhaul before not too long. That's another thirty grand at least. And then let's talk about avionics. And we've got some great modern avionics available to us in the Garmin line and other lines. And so that makes all these older airplanes even more capable with more situational awareness. But again, you're going to have to put five or 10,000 bucks into avionics to, to get a nice instrument platform, maybe get rid of the vacuum system, mm-hmm. go all electronic. But even still, that's that, you know, you're adding 40,000 more dollars between that and the engine to, to something that's already 50 years old. So, yeah. And not to mention, I mean, I don't want to go on a tangent here, but not to mention, if you buy an airplane with the idea of upgrading it, you are going to be waiting a long time because of supply chain issues and, and shop time. I mean, both of those things are going to push your job out, what, six months, I would say, at least, depending on what kind of equipment you're putting in. So, good point. Hey, I want to, I want to know a little bit more about LSAs. Now, you, t- you tapped on something that we just, you just briefly touched on it. Tell me a little bit about the advantage of an LSA. We're, let's be realistic. Where it's going to be two of us. We're going three, four hundred miles. That's where general aviation really does shine. Instead of a six-hour trip in a car, now you're looking at two hours or so, something like that. Tell me a little bit about what I can and can't do if I was looking at LSA, a modern LSA. Yeah, I mean, in terms of advantages, you've got modern construction. You have, which means usually fiberglass, even carbon fiber in some cases. You've got a lot of speed, a lot of efficiency. A lot of them are going 100 to 120 knots at, let's call it, four and a half, five gallons an hour. You can run auto fuel in it because it's Rotex, so you're sort of future-proofed against what we'll talk about in a few minutes with 100 low lead. Parts can be hit or miss. This is one of the challenges with with LSAs because the they have different rules, these ASTM rules. The, the manufacturer has a lot more authority over what can be done with the airplane than it does, let's say, with the FAA, where you can get STCs and all these sorts of things, it all comes down to the manufacturer. So that's that can be challenging. You have to, I think, really look into that and, the, and look into the community. Of course, a lot of them are based in Europe, and so how long is it going to take you to get a part? But, yeah, man, I mean, I, I was looking at the market when I was doing the story a couple of months ago, and call it a 152 even, definitely the 172s, the Cherokee 140s, 160s, they're all like totally out of sight. But this modern LSA, you're talking, you can get one that's only about 10 years old for 50 grand. Like a, a Remos or something like that? Yeah. Remos, uh, Vectors. Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of those might even have a ballistic parachute. Yes, they might have a parachute. Their cabins are wider than older airplanes. They are, you know, they're light. They can maybe fit with a hanger buddy. It's, I think they're a good way to go, but you have to be realistic about your mission. Can I fly an instrument approach in one? No, no, you can't. That is a problem. But I can I can fly at night. Yes. But uh, so I can fly at night uh, below ten thousand feet. Is that right on the East Coast? That's not a problem. Oh my God! You're yeah. You're. I think so. <laughs> it's been a little while since I've looked at the regs. I put you on the spot with that. <laughs> oh, you did, yeah. But basically, you're looking at you're looking at VFR flight. You're not looking at IFR. So the weather's got to be good. 
if it's booming, uh, booming winds, you're gonna have a problem because it's like a, a cork on the ocean because they're they're you know lightly wing loaded that kind of thing. Probably better for east of the Mississippi than west in that case. Yeah, exactly. There you go. So so there's some good advantages, but some disadvantages. So really check out the mission, but don't eliminate an LSA. Yeah, very true. So one place to see all this stuff is AirVenture, where you could finally go again this year. And for you, one of the biggest stories. Wow, Ian, that's a great transition. That was so cool. <laughs> Good job. Yeah, um, I went to AirVenture uh, this year. You know, at AFPA, we had kind of a limited presence there. Um, we were still in the throes of the coronavirus. So people had just started getting their shots and things like that, their vaccinations. But it was a huge success. I think aviators were were just really chomping at the bit to get together with other aviators. And the AirVenture folks and Jack Pelton really pulled it off. Listen, 608,000 aviators and aviation enthusiasts swarmed the grounds over at Whitman Regional. And Jack said that they had sixteen to 17,000 airplanes on the grounds and, quote-unquote, didn't turn anybody away. So that's pretty significant. The weather held up this year. Uh, there were some new advances in electronics and avionics and apps, uh, as we've talked about before. And one of the biggest things, one of the, I guess one of the highlights out of that air venture was we saw, uh, we got a glimpse of Scrappy. Yes. And uh, I thought that was another cool thing. Mike Patey, folks who uh, are watching his YouTube channel were very excited to see what he was going to do after Draco was destroyed in 2019. And so Scrappy was displayed as a four-blade propeller on the front of this uh, Carbon Cub EX-3 Bush airplane. And the interesting thing about that to me is the innovation. I just want to talk about innovation for a minute because at AirVenture, that is the highlight of, of a lot of AirVenture. It's innovations, what's new, what's next. Scrappy has, has a ton of uh, technology, but what the, one of the coolest things I thought, and we talked about this earlier on another show, was that he's got dual shock struts on each side of the aircraft. Oh, yeah, that was so cool. I love that. I truly think that this might be something other like manufacturers might at one point deploy. Yeah. So, But it allows the, air, the aircraft to either lower the nose, raise the tail, or tilt the airplane left to right. For instance, say you're um, doing missionary work and you've got to land on the side of a mountain. Like like I just recently saw Mel Gibson in, in Air America in a movie a while back. <laughs> and they were yeah. doing this kind of thing. But this would actually really pr provide a significant safety benefit for you to land in, in uh, unhospitable terrain like that. So I think that's kind of neat. And, and Patey was just all about innovation and very occur encouraging to young aviators one of the best quotes i think that from the whole year um, when we was talking about young aviators was that aviation is one giant happy family it's a wonderful place and i promise you the first time you get your aircraft two inches off the ground it's going to be fun that time and ten thousand hours later too and he said flying is unreal just go do it so i admire him yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I think it brings, the airplane is so cool, so outlandish. It, it brings a whole new community of people who are interested in modern tech and that whole, the car movement, you know, we're seeing it, people do crazy stuff with their cars and just, it, it lets your imagination flow as to what's possible. And so I love that. It's very cool. Indeed. Well, before we leave AirVenture, I want to bring up a couple more things. AirVenture this year, because of Boeing, Boeing contributed a lot of money. They basically mm -hmm. were Boeing allowed youth that were 18 and under to attend for free. 
And that drove attendance. Now, also, let's think about that. Drove attendance to new heights. Now, let's think about that. If you're 18 and under, you probably maybe you have a car, maybe you don't, but you're probably dragging your parents along. Yeah. So if you're dragging your parents along to AirVenture, now all of a sudden we're trying to grow the population of the aviation community. I think that's a good thing. So having that um, that youth movement, and Jack Pelton, the EAA uh, chairman, said that he vowed as long as he was uh, uh, chairman and president that they would continue to allow young people in for free. I think that was huge. David, how many do you think were kids dragging their non-pilot parents versus those cheap pilots oh, well, that we know? Maybe you have a point. Who thought, oh, well, okay, fine, I'll bring the kid yeah, this maybe year. It's have, not going to cost me anything. You have a you point, know? Ian. Okay, I stand yeah. corrected. But um, <laughs> and now we also heard about a four-letter word at AirVenture, and this is uh, complimentary of the FAA's uh, FAA administrator, uh, Steve Dixon, Loda. So do you want to get our, our listeners up to speed yes, on Loda? I see what you're doing. You're, you're throwing in a, uh, a, side, a side note for another top story, which, yeah, this, this is a big one, Loda. This was something the FAA sort of came up with in the middle of the year, a bit randomly, the letter of deviation authority. And it required, for the first time, owners and or CFIs of experimental aircraft to get a specific authorization from the FAA to be able to give or receive instruction on those airplanes. Exactly. And this is something that AOPA has been fighting ever since. And uh, we've made some headway on this, but the the bottom line is that owners of aircraft in the limited, experimental, and primary categories had to complete some paperwork that we say doesn't really add to safety, may cause uh, some deferred training, and it's more or less a document drill. Yeah, and this happened, I mean, almost overnight. It I mean, did. It, it, it came did. out, and it was like, I think people had just a couple of days to comply. So you can imagine, it came out, you've got training scheduled for Monday, and it's like, well, sorry, it can't happen, and who knows how long. I will say this is, I think, one of the stranger stories of the year, partly because of Dixon and the stuff that he said at AirVenture, which was basically... He, he didn't really take responsibility from the FAA standpoint. He's like, well, my hands are sort of tied. And I, it's like, man, you're the boss. Like, why, why can't you change it? But it's so clear that he was just deferring to the attorneys and whatever they had decided was required. So that, that was a very odd story. Very odd. Well, speaking, going from very odd to very important, let's transition to Avgas. This is something that you said might be our number one story of the year and to the future. Yeah, I think so. I think it's the biggest story of last year and the biggest story of next year and I should say of 2021 and 2022, depending on when you're listening to this. David, there is no question that we need to get lead out of aviation fuel. We have all known that for many years. It it becomes urgent at various points, and right now I would say it's urgent, and that is because there are some airports in California that are completely banning the sale of it. We know how that thing will spread, so this is a big deal because we don't have yet a viable replacement for the entire fleet. And AOPA has been working for literally decades on on a fuel alternative and uh we were over we're happy to report and uh tom haynes actually broke this story at uh, the general aviation modifications incorporated GAMI, the folks who have uh the lena peak operations yes. and and fuel injection the they've been uh, yep. bullish on that for a long time so they uh basically uh george barley came out with um, an approved model list of about 611 engines uh, that was issued back in October after the news broke in July that you are able to use their 100 unleaded fuel in these aircraft engines, but that is not the entire fleet, and therein lies the problem. Yes, so if you have a 172 or a Cherokee or anything down from there, you can use this fuel today. You Well, 
You could use this fuel if it were available widely. You could use it today. That is something that we'll talk about in a second. But the real issue is AOPA forever has said, and I think the industry probably agrees, there has to be one fuel. There, the market is just not big enough to support multiple fuels. We're basically going to get avgas. Well, I shouldn't say avgas. We're going to get an unleaded aviation fuel and jet fuel, and that's it. So it has to be one of those, and it has to work across all piston engines. And and although the GAMI fuel shows promise there, and they say it works, it is not yet approved for all those engines. No, especially not for the more high-performance engines, which actually account for 80% of total avgas utilization. And that when you analyze it, that kind of makes sense. We were just talking about LSAs and aircraft market and things like that. The going places people are in a slightly bigger aircraft. You got your six-cylinder engines, uh, you know, big old Lycoming or Continental engine, and you're actually taking people and going somewhere, and a lot of times using it for using that aircraft for business. So basically, the remaining 30% of engines require that 100-octane fuel, and that, like I said, accounts for 80% of the total avgas utilization. So where we stand right now is, Gammy says in the first quarter of the year, they're going to have those uh, those approvals. We'll see. Uh, they have actually, I, I was very skeptical they were going to get as many as they did throughout this year. So, you know, fingers crossed for next year. If they get those approvals, we talked about this on the show just a couple of weeks ago, I thought, oh, okay, we'll give us six months a year and we'll start to see the fuel. No way, man. They're talking years. I was thinking that would, it would be that quick, but it's not because of the infrastructure. Now, now this is something you can help us help explain to us, Ian. The infrastructure of getting that fuel from, the say, the manufacturer to the pipeline, from the pipeline to the trucks, from the trucks to the airport, is something that needs to be still worked out. Yeah, so... Gammy, as we know, is not a fuel manufacturer. I mean, they, they don't have the facilities, the know-how, whatever, to manufacture this thing on a big scale and distribute it. So they're going to have to license the technology. They got to come up with all those licensing agreements. They got to come up with stable ways to manufacture, store it, cold conditions, hot conditions, all over the world, really, because this has to be a worldwide replacement. And then you've got to get everybody ramped up to be able to do that. Who knows if they're going to be able to mix with 100 low lead? How is that phase in, phase out going to work? So we're talking, they're saying, what was it? I think it's three, four, five years, something like that, until the thing is really totally ready. And that's if it works in all these engines. Yeah, and as you mentioned at the top of this segment, Ian, already two airports in California have, have banned our typical avgas. Now, I was thinking about that a minute ago, which is like, oh my gosh, they banned avgas at those two airports. Are all those aircraft, grounded or they just they're just there or does everyone go to another airport and and have hangers elsewhere well i talked with nikki Britton, uh who's uh, an associate editor for us and she lives out that way and she reminded me listen david you know the aircraft that are out there you know we just fly 15 miles to another airport and we fill up then we come back so that's a hassle factor but it do, it's not like the airport shut down although this is what we think in an effort to, you know, limit the traffic at these couple of airports and the first step in, in, a, in long steps of trying to throttle back, you know, use of general aviation at these airports because the, the real estate is valuable there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, like we said, a lot more to come in the coming year on this. I think we're all agreed that lead needs to come out of Avgas, and it will. As soon as we can solve those technology challenges, people are working very hard, very quickly to be able to do that. But... 
we are steadfast that it has to apply to everybody, to the entire fleet, and that everybody will be included in this replacement. Exactly. And and listen, for podcast uh, listeners, uh, long-time Hangar Talk folks, they could stay tuned to what APA is doing. We're at the front end of the spear on this. You could look at www.aopa.org slash 100UL. It's a new web page with a lot of resources for us and for aircraft owners. And an email address that you can write to 100UL at aopa.org. And there's a reminder there to sign up for updates. So don't forget the email address. I'll read it one more time. 100UniformLima at aopa.org or the web page address aopa.org slash 100 ul that's as in uniform lima for more all right david i think we did it that's it that is the top five or six because you threw that extra one in there of the year sneaky (laughs) and i think that's all the time we have happy new year david and uh we'll see you soon happy new year ian thanks to everyone for listening and listen uh the tip of the hat to austin hansen our audio editor for sticking with us all this year and don't forget, you can find us at aopa.org slash hangertalk and wherever your podcasts are. All right. We'll see you next time. See you next year, Ian. Hangar Talk from AOPA, your freedom to fly.